I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged, and we are going to get unplugged today. We are going to get very unplugged today. Yeah? Yeah. Is it a special unplugged day? It is a special. I mean, the heart of Theology Unplugged is that we we come together, we sit around a table, and a lot of times we don't really know what we're going to talk about, but the idea is is that we have four people who have devoted their lives to studying the things of God, living for God, abiding in Him, and basically when a conversation topic arises, what is that conversation that breaks out? And the idea behind Theology Unplugged is a lot, you might be in in an area surrounded by some friends. Or, or maybe be in a spot where you feel like you just don't have that theological conversation that you'd love to have. And so what we're going to do is try and invite you to be a part of that conversation and that you could just see how we think through issues biblically and hopefully it'll be edifying for you. And so this is a very unplugged thing because basically we didn't know what we were going to talk about until just a few minutes ago. Yeah, and we haven't talked about it yet. We haven't discussed it yet. The conversations were trying to break out in advance and we put them all on pause so that we could let it happen on air. Because they were unplugged conversations. Yeah, we were saying, "Ho, oh, hold on, hold on." And JJ, who is back, welcome JJ. It's great JJ. to have you here. It's good to be back. JJ was wanting to just wax eloquent, and we told him, "You cannot wax eloquent. You've got to slow down." Yeah, he had his. He came in with his sermon notes prepared. <laughs> he did like an outline, we introduction. We changed the topic on him. What yeah. to say when Michael says this? <laughs> Insert pause here, laugh here. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, how you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah. I am. Yeah. Right. Good to see JJ back. Having he back was in a backslidden condition for <laughs> about right. six months now. Welcome back to the faith. Returned to the faith. Yes. I've been put under church discipline and I've returned. <laughs> that's all right, but that's a nice to get you back in, uh, plugged back in to unplugged that quickly. That's the way we can do things around here. That's right. Most places they take you out of the nursery, take you out of, you know, maybe even have you sit in the court of the Gentiles. But, I, was, I was afraid there was no way back home. It's nice to know that sometimes you can go back home. Yeah, really, yeah. I just missed you guys. I realized I just missed you too much. Yeah, well, we missed you too. And uh, just so you know a little bit, JJ and Sam served together at Bridgeway Church, excellent church, uh, doing wonderful things. And then Michael and I served together. So it's kind of we're a team of four, but we're split down into two different teams of two people that minister in different contexts. But um, basically have very similar backgrounds and theologically and everything, but love to discuss things. And usually we'll end up disagreeing about some things. Yeah. JJ, why did you leave beforehand? You weren't kicked off. It was a theological issue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. He, yeah. Just, just to let you know, he was not kicked off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was about the Philly Oakway, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I really was tr- trying to, to cut out anything, uh, that was keeping me away from the family. And so at that time I felt like I needed to start saying no to some things to, to spend more time with the family. No, you don't so. agree with that. Yeah, anymore. I, no, I've compromised my principles and I'm back. So we expect to see you gone again in another six weeks yeah, or so. I told Tim, I said the privilege of being allowed back in. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to abandon you again. I've, I've learned my lesson. All right. Well, good. Well, me and me and uh, Tim had a Paul, uh, Barnabas, John, Mark kind of issue with you, you know. And I, it, he didn't want you to come back, and I said, "Come on," and he fought and fought and I said finally I'm putting my foot down either you're gone or JJ's gone and um, mercy, I mercy, chose you and he came back yeah, I'm surprised to see you here Tim after. I'm just I'm bitter but that's okay I'll get over it alright well uh, we may have some other stuff that talk about concerning bitterness uh, maybe a special 
Theology Unplugged podcast. This is the one that we said, let's, uh, let's try to do something on this because uh, it's uh, the Wednesday morning, the morning after the election. Uh, we're going to try to put this up as quick as possible for people to listen to because it is an important issue. And we got an email this morning that you talked about and said, hey, maybe we ought to because this is the way people think. Yeah, well, and I think everybody's processing the election. Uh, I mean, our country is, the United States is definitely divided uh, in through ideology and just different perspectives of seeing things. Uh, but then I was checking my email early this morning and, and fortunately the our brothers and sisters that live on the other side of the Atlantic are able to process things while we're sleeping. And uh, we got an email from a guy in the UK uh, who basically was commenting on how so many leaders in the reformed movement of Calvinists that all day long will talk about the sovereignty of God and how we can rest in God and trust him. And, uh, and we ring that bell every day. Uh, but then this person from the UK was observing, it seemed like all of those people who, who talk about the sovereignty of God forgot about that and basically turned to doom and gloom and the world is ending. And I, I'm gonna have to take a week vacation to recover from this and uh and i'm gonna move to a different country and all these things and kind of said what what's why do you guys he actually called in this email he called for us to repent <laughs> and uh, he hadn't read your email yet or your blog posts on uh, parchment and pen yet where i thought it, you did an excellent job processing a lot of the thoughts of it but uh, at the same time you know, it's definitely something I think that every Christian and every American is thinking about is just reflecting on the presidential election and saying, especially as Christians, how do we process this? Uh, how, how do we process elections in general? And Sam did a great job on the blog post talking about that in light of the King of Kings. But now that uh, that Romney has lost and Obama has won and, and we look at the next four years, how should we process these things? Well, guys, no, I was just going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, I was just going to say that, um, um, I, I suspect that our friend from overseas might have a little bit of a misconception of how Calvinists, those who believe in the sovereignty of God as we do, respond uh, when we think things have gone in a, uh, an unbiblical direction. Now, again, obviously I'm speaking something as a, as a partisan here. Uh, my, my convictions politically are coming out, which I guess is okay. And then what we're going to talk about a little bit. So yeah, this is all politics yeah. today. So yeah, I'm speaking as a private <laughs> citizen here, you know, not, not as the pastor of a church. Nobody has ever actually lost their 501c3 status for yeah. talking about politics. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. We might be the first, but, but, you know. but it's important to remember regardless of how the election might've turned out. Uh, if you were a Democrat and uh, supported the Obama administration, and let's say Romney would have run, uh, and you affirm uh, very strongly the sovereignty of God, does not mean you are indifferent to uh, events that you think are going to have a significant impact on uh, your country and even on uh, the church in America. Um, I think, for example, of um, Paul in Romans 9, who obviously in that chapter affirms the sovereignty of God and salvation more passionately than anywhere else in the Bible, and that he opens the chapter talking about this unceasing grief and overwhelming sorrow that he has because of his kinsmen according to the flesh, his Jewish brothers who have rejected Christ. So Paul, I mean, would we rebuke Paul and say, look, Paul, come on, you're a Calvinist, at least we think you are, um, and uh, you believe in God's sovereignty over salvation, so why are you so agitated and emotionally distraught over the fact that so many of these individuals have rejected Christ? 
uh, I mean, we could cite multitude of examples. Um, believing in the sovereignty of God does not, you know, does not somehow um, render your heart uh, calloused and indifferent and um, incapable of responding to what you perceive may be a wrong turn in the affairs of state or even in the affairs of the church. So I think it's perfectly compatible for those who affirm the sovereignty of God to feel anguish when they see uh, things take a turn uh, that they believe is going to be um, dangerous or destructive to, to, to a city, a state, a nation, a church. Uh, but we still affirm that God is in complete and absolute control. So um, this is that's the beauty of compatibilism, which we all affirm, is that we still believe that Christ is seated on the throne, uh, regardless uh, of who won or who lost yesterday. Uh, the kingdom of God has not been um, hindered in its forward movement. It is not suspended upon any political party. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we have no feelings or that we don't care or that we don't bemoan the outcome. Uh, we just bemoan it and then say, Lord, thank you that uh, you are wiser than we are and we submit to your ways. Yeah, I think that's good because I, I do think, you know, throughout church history, there were groups of people who said when we're fully trusting in God, it means we'll feel no emotion. You know, we'll, we'll never have a care in the world. We'll, we'll, we'll just be steady Eddie throughout our entire mm -hmm. life. And thankfully, that was rejected by, by, by the vast majority of Christians saying, no, that, that doesn't characterize us because Jesus wept and he had things under control. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's okay to, to have an outpouring of emotion. And, uh, but, but I think, uh, I think the important thing, the way, one of the ways I'm processing it this morning, though, too, is to recognize that, uh, that it's, even and Michael brought this up in his post. Even if we view things as maybe worse as our or not as good as our ideal thoughts about how our country should go, that we still don't live at the time of the judges. You know, when it was just the worst things that we could possibly consider, or you know, the Assyrians are not besieging our city. Yeah, I mean, there are many things about our country still where we see God's abundant favor and just even the. I watched a Romney's. Uh, speech this morning, and then I watched Obama's speech, and I thought to myself, there are so many countries on earth today where Romney would say, or the person in Romney's shoes would say, okay, let's take to the streets, let's start, you know, don't pay your taxes anymore, you know, don't do this, don't, we're going to overthrow this thing now. And that he just so graciously, uh, his, a lot of his, his speech was pray that the president would be able to uh, lead our country in the right direction. And, uh, and I was just overwhelmed thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe just the kind of gentlemanly nature that he had in, in even saying that, that uh, saying good things about the president. I didn't hear him say one bad thing about the president and, uh, and just showed that, wow, this is a rare thing that, that people are able to do this. There was a camera angle, though, yeah. from behind. He had his fingers crossed behind his back. <laughs> no, no it's, just I kidding. didn't see that. Yeah. Well, I had my fingers crossed as I was saying that, too. It, it's interesting sort of tracking people's responses on the Internet, especially uh, Romney supporters, people whose candidate did not uh, achieve success last night. You saw two really predominant biblical themes come up again and again, fear and anger. Mm -hmm. And fear and anger both map onto scripture really, really well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there, there's something there of political idolatry. And it's, and it's really subtle because, of course, I, idols are often good things that we make God things, and that's a bad thing, right? So political idolatry, it's, it's good to have opinions politically. It's good to vote. It's good to 
to desire a common grace good in the nation in which you reside. It's bad to define the success of your particular party as that which will bring happiness and satisfaction and the failure of your particular party as that which will lead to lack of joy that will, that will literally block your ability to have peace. Uh, so as Ed Welch has so famously said, you know, uh, worry is a false prophet. Fear is a false prophet. So it was interesting to see so much fear that in a sense was nullifying God's ability to accomplish his purposes, regardless of who landed in office. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, I think that it's an opportunity for Christians as ambassadors for Christ. I think it's an opportunity for us to to act and respond in a way that is that it surprises people, I think, you know, for, for us to recognize that our goal in life is not for people to become Republicans. Our goal in life is, is not for Romney to, to become the president. Our goal in life is that we would clearly communicate the gospel to people in a way that we say, you don't have to be a Republican to, to come to Jesus, you know, to have true peace, you know, for your soul to have peace, you just need to take on Jesus. And that's it. And you can even stay a Democrat. And now someone said, well, with the Spirit of God inside of you, you won't. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, I think Republicans would say that. But I mean, but I, tro- I, mean, I truly think it's an opportunity for us to say, we become legalists if we say a Christian means that you're Republican. A Christian means you vote this way. A Christian means these things. Because then what you start doing is you try and make people those things. And then they become those things without Christ and still go to hell, you know. And and I think that the I think it, it there today is a good opportunity for people to say, you know what, what we did yesterday was very profound. What we did yesterday was a great thing that many people have spilled their blood and given their lives so that we can vote in a in a free nation. That was a beautiful thing that happened yesterday. Uh, it didn't go maybe the way that a lot that half of America wanted it to go. It went the way that the other half wanted it to go. Uh, but regardless, I think you know a Christian's main uh, responsibility is as an ambassador for Christ. And I think it's a great opportunity not to go up to your neighbor who had an Obama Biden sign and and be mad at them, but to to say you know what. He did. He did a great job with his campaign, and uh, and I'm. I still want to love you and tell you about Jesus. Yeah. Well, it's hard because you know, for me, <clears throat> um, for me, I, I suppose that I am more of a one issue person than than I like to think I am. You know, I like to think I'm more profound in my theological um, uh, considerations or my political considerations whenever I'm talking about these things. But I thought the other day, you know, if if everything were the same and Obama was pro-life and Romney was pro-abortion or um, pro-choice, I'd vote for Obama. <laughs> I mean, I would. That's, that's how profound that issue is to me, even though I am uh, deeply... Uh, rooted in the small government uh, mm-hmm. issues of uh, my more conservative uh, uh, side of things. But whenever you talk about all of these issues, I think the natural thing for us to go to is just to say, what's going to happen now? What's next? What does this mean? Mm-hmm. And you begin, to, you begin to dwell upon those things, and you get a group of people together that, you know, for them it means the same thing. Our country's going downhill. We're, we're sliding into immorality. We're sliding to worse and worse things. And, and it could very well be that. I, I don't know. I'm not going to make any predictions about the direction our country is heading. But I think that that's whenever it becomes the idolatry that you were talking about mm-hmm. is whenever this, this what could it be? What does this mean? What does it mean that President Obama was elected? 
uh, for us and what's the next steps. And we start to look down the road and we become kind of prophetic counselors to each other about, well, this is what's going to happen. And this is why my friend who was on Facebook said he's leaving the country. And, you know, I, I, my first thought was, where are you going to go? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's better right now? Another thing that it might even be worth for us to think about and talk about for a minute. Um, I have a good friend who is a very well-known blogger in the UK. And um, a couple of, about a week ago, he uh, posted an article in which he was befuddled, is I guess the best word to use, as to why in America there is such polarization and division uh, politically. And why is it that Americans seem to tie or link their Christian faith with a particular political perspective or candidate or party? Because he said in the UK, he said, I virtually have never witnessed uh, Christians appealing to uh, their theological or biblical convictions uh, to justify their support of a particular candidate. And I wonder, um, I, I thought, I've thought a lot about that and I've asked the question, why is it, what is it about the nature of the American political system as well as the nature of the church in our country that causes us to be more quick to identify um, with a political position or a candidate based on what we think is moral, biblical morality or our faith. And, and it's not the case really in the UK or in Europe, uh, generally speaking. And um, it's interesting because, you know, you've raised, there, there are issues such as uh, the abortion question. Um, you know, abortion is far more uh, common and less of volatile of a subject in the UK and Europe than it is here. It's certainly, you know, you don't find the protests, uh, mm. um, the operation rescue, uh, expressions of the, of the pro-life movement overseas, as you find here, or even the issue of gay marriage. Um, it's, it's just simply doesn't register that high, um, in the political convictions of people. It's not to say that they, the Christians overseas don't have moral, biblical mm -hmm. convictions about what's right and wrong, but it's not expressed through the political system in the way that it is here in America. I also thought maybe it has to do with the, uh, the role of the Supreme Court in our system that is not present in most European governments. The fact that the Supreme Court in many ways is now the most powerful of the three branches of government. And so much of the direction of the country is dictated by Supreme Court decisions. And of course, that itself is governed by who shall the, whom shall the president appoint and Congress approve. Um, so I think Christians over here uh, look at this and they say, well, we've probably got Obama's likely to have two nominations on the Supreme Court before his four years are up. Uh, Ginsburg and um, I can't remember the other guy who's very old. Is it John Paul Stevens? Yeah, I don't know. Um, in his late 80s. Yeah. Um, it, it are likely to step down. And uh, the constitution of the court uh, ultimately decides so much more in our country than in any other country mm -hmm. in the world. And so... That, I think, is one reason why there's such energy to get one's own political uh, party in power because of the kind of, um, of weight that is carried by Supreme Court decisions. So, But it is interesting to see in America why there is such polarization in a way that you don't find uh, in England, for example. 
Well, you know, I mean, in America, it's almost impossible for me to imagine being able to segregate the issues of my faith with my vote. I mean, I, my, fa my vote is based, number one, upon my faith, but it's also commanded by my faith. You know, I, I feel like in a system of government such as we are, we are um, uh, commanded in Romans chapter 13 to, to be involved in these things, to, to take up the mantle, the political mantle. And the only way we have to inform that is through our faith. I mean, whether it is big government or what to do with the poor or what to do with the unborn or what to do with gay marriage. I mean, everything becomes a religious issue for us. And to, for someone to say, well, you need to separate those, and I don't understand the integration that goes on there, I, I never can understand the integration that doesn't happen outside of the idea of maybe just people and forgive me for saying this, but whenever you're less committed to your faith, you're going to be less committed to these issues, and it's easier to segregate them. And I'm not saying whenever you're most committed to your faith, then you're automatically going to be like me, but that's the direction I automatically, you know, go to. Yeah, and at the same time, I think all of us would agree. I, I'm assuming we would. If we don't, let me know. We're not arguing that the Bible advocates any any one particular political system mm -hmm. or any one particular economic strategy or philosophy. Um, we think that we're simply saying that as we read the scriptures, there are underlying moral principles that are very clearly articulated that find their most robust expression in a particular political um, system of government or a particular approach to the economic system, whether it would be a state-run, socialized um, uh, economy or one that is more given to free market principles. So, um, you know, I, I freely acknowledge that I, I don't. It would be very difficult to prove democracy from the Bible. Um, but when I read the scripture and I try to discern its principles and I look at history. Uh, as well, and the way it has functioned here in this country, it seems to me that that is the most, you know, uh, this is the most biblical approach, if I can even put it that way. I'm not a statist, as uh, I believe in small government and less is better. Um, but again, we're not saying that if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you have to embrace a particular economic philosophy, even though we might, in, parenthetically in our heads, say, oh, yeah, but you should. <laughs> well, Sam, I think you make the Founding Fathers prophets, you know, by your point about the judicial branch, because this was something even Jefferson and other Founding Fathers wrestled with. You know, we want to create some system of checks and balances that's going to function well, but their constant fear was how to rein in the judicial branch, and they never quite solved it. So to this day, it has become the hot seat of, of how then shall we live as the American people, and it's going to be defined by a very small group uh, over whom the president ultimately has a large amount of decision-making power. So I think what people need to take from that is that their vote matters and that there are actual issues on the table over which there are perhaps right and wrong positions to hold, and uh, your vote for the president is going to affect that. So my biggest concern is not when someone votes for a candidate that I wouldn't vote for. My biggest concern is when someone responds to my attempt to engage in civil dialogue by saying, well, it doesn't really matter who you vote for. And that shows their lack of awareness of the ripple effects mm -hmm. of your vote, your opinion as an American citizen. Yeah. I want to come back to something Michael said, um, because I, I agree with you. You talked about one issue in particular that governs your thinking and your uh, political um, persuasion more than any other, that being, of course, the issue of abortion and the right to life. 
Um, and I guess my question, my question would be, maybe this is a little bit too volatile to raise it, but I'm going to anyway. Um, if an individual, whether it's a, a, a governor of a state or a senator or a U.S. representative or a Supreme Court justice or a president or a vice president, anyone in, with political power, openly advocates the um, moral right of an individual, uh, of a woman, to, to kill her child at any stage while that child is in the womb, even up to a very late-term abortion, if that is something that they are passionately defending and do not feel moral compunctions or convictions or any kind of hesitation, does that say something about the individual, uh, more broadly speaking? Is, is there, is, are there issues of character here? Are there issues of moral judgment that are reflected in that kind of, of a point of view? Now, I know the answer to that Broadly speaking, in the evangelical conservative Christian world in America, the answer is yes. And that's why so many people uh, are, in a sense, one-issue voters, because it's not just simply that there's a position that is being advocated uh, by one particular party, but that position, they believe, is reflective of a fundamental moral flaw yeah. on the part of those who are advocated. Would you agree with that? Do you think do you think that is a significant factor in how people think or should think? Well, it's it's a significant factor in how I think. And obviously how I think, if I didn't think other people should think that way, I'd change my thinking about it. You know, I mean, I think that there is some, all of us think there's legitimacy to the way we think and we wish other people would think the same way. And whenever it comes down to that issue, most definitely, I mean, whenever, whenever you're, whenever you're trying to argue the other side, which we try to do in theology all the time, we try to come to an understanding about things and see where people are coming from and see how big the issue really is so that we can know whether to join hands with them theologically and to be able to move forward on things and th that sort of stuff. Whenever I look at this issue of abortion and try to see the other side, it's very, very difficult for me to ever see the other side. Okay. Do you want me to give you the other side? No. Uh, I've got the other side, man. No, I'm I, feeling I, I, it. I, I, want to hear, I want to hear the other side. Come okay. on, Tim. Come okay. On, Tim. Okay. okay, so here's the other side. I'm not saying this is my view. I'm just saying here's the other side. The other side is saying... In human nature, we hate it when people take the moral high road, right? So someone will come up and say, I mean, it, it's, it stinks with pride and arrogance and things like that. And what, what the other side will say is, you, you, have, you have done a straw man taking the moral high road by saying, um, basically, we care about human life and you don't. And we care about the unborn and you don't. And what the other side will say is, okay, I'll give you one point for for saying that you really care about about the unborn but you lose a point because you don't care about the mother and those people who are who it's going to be very hard on them and you don't care about the rest of that person's life and so they'll say yeah you're really i mean i even know people like this that i think they're really passionate about an abortion issue but they really have no uh, compassion for the rest of that person's life. They just want to make sure that person makes it to the, the hospital and makes it in that little basket and then says, good luck from here on out. I'm not going to help you for the rest of your life. And so what they're saying is that you Republican evangelical Christians, yes, you are moral in that one little area, but you you have forsaken God's love and morality on that person for the rest of their life. You want to deport deport people who it's not their fault that they live in this country. You know you don't care about people getting an education. This, this. I mean, they'll go to it. Now you can argue those issues, but uh, but on a morality who sense, who did you vote for? 
<laughs> hey, hey, I'm just saying that I, I feel like I can understand the, uh, my neighbor. I've tried to get in the head of my neighbor who's a pastor and has an Obama thing on their on their uh, yard, you know. And I think it's this way is that they feel like, um, okay, I give you that one. We live in a complicated gray world, and uh, but I feel like by my, my voting here, uh, I'm voting for more morality than you are. And and is is, is the view? Yeah, and let's let's just be quick to respond to that. All right. When you look at um, the, the needs of single moms mm -hmm. and the uh, situation with young children in these very difficult uh, family situations who are living on the edge of poverty, I would ask you who has done more concretely, financially, spiritually, uh, in a practical way to help them, and I would say it's the Church of Jesus Christ. Yeah. If you look at the at the at the ministries the of, the, of the evangelical, no sir, the evangelicals <laughs> around just our community. Hey, you're looking at me with like evil eyes. I know. No, I, I'm I, just I, simply I, saying. I was just sharing the view. <laughs> I'm simply saying the idea that somehow we're yeah. only concerned for life until uh, it's born is just simply a caricature and false. Um, uh, there is there there is no agency, organization of government, political party, group, movement in America that is more passionately committed to helping and sustaining and being generous in its giving to those in need than is the evangelical church. So let's, you saying let's that not have too short a memory here, though. I agree that the Colorado initiative uh, that was so unprecedented with focus on the family. Uh, in, you know, instigating uh, so many abortions and foster care, I mean, abortions, so many foster care and adoption relationships, all those things are good. But even a generation ago, you got pregnant in a small town and you left to have your baby. And these are often small towns with lots of people in church. So there has been a culture shift, but it's pretty recent, I would say. And, uh, and I understand what Tim is saying, that these things are often divided along socioeconomic and racial lines. And uh, most of us don't always have a direct awareness of what it's like to be a single pregnant woman with very little financial prospects or a broader family support system mm -hmm. and how scary that is. And and so we've always taken the moral high road on abortion. We've often been slow and silent on adoption and foster care. I think that's changing, but I would say the last two or three generations, our track record has not been great. And let's also remember the vast, vast majority of orphanages in this country and around the world have been started and are sustained and supported by Christians. So are you saying that this, I mean, would you say ultimately... Tim, we're we, done. We just, okay. It's over. <laughs> you, you're well, not going to go back and forth, but I'm getting signals over here that we're done. Okay. I was just going to say, I think the task ahead is just to disciple people. I know you were just going to say something, <laughs> I said we're done. Okay, my talking will end now. And I would simply say that there is no greater expression of love and compassion for a woman than to do whatever you can uh, to uh, persuade her not to kill her child. Hey, you picked up that ball. That's why you're still getting the evil eye. All right. Hey, I'm just saying. I'm just saying that I do think I agree with Sam, and I do think too, though, that the greatest thing we can do on the Wednesday after the election is tell people about the freedom found in Jesus on both Absolutely. sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. Both sides of the aisle. Yeah, and and the discouraged people that are out there. I mean, we 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 do we do hang our head in sadness. I mean, if something happens that. 
that that is tragic in our life and we feel like this is tragic i mean every time that something like this happens it is to some degree tragic because we cannot separate ourselves we cannot separate our beliefs from the responsibility we have to be involved however having said that whenever something tragic does happen we do we do look in anticipation at what god is doing and knowing that that his will has been done his man is in the white house in some sense and that uh, it did not slip by him. And we can rejoice in this, that God is still in control, that Obama has been placed there for a reason, and we can, we can even have a great excitement due to the fact that we believe that God is sovereign over things. Amen. All right, until next time.